How are we doing, people? I don't know if you know this or not, but the English language can be really confusing. And um, I always feel kind of bad for those of you that um, English isn't your first language because I can't imagine what that's like to try to make sense of it because words are all over the place and words are beautiful and words are um, powerful but words are wacky and and sometimes words can mean several different things and often they have like a word or a phrase can have different and often like even antithetical meanings there's a word for that, actually. I've, I've been looking for this word for a long time, and it is contronym. That's a real thing. It's like synonym and antonym. A contronym is like you can, you can dust the table. Some of you really should. It's been a while. You can <laughs> dust the table, but you can also dust a strawberry with powdered sugar. You can take dust away, you can put dust on, but same word. See what I'm saying? Uh, uh, buckle. Buckle. You, when you're going on a hike, you can buckle the strap on your backpack, and on the way up the hill or the mountain, your knees can buckle. You know what I'm saying? Two very different outcomes of the same word. I think what if is a bit of a, of a contronym. It can have two very different meanings. It is a, it's a phrase that has uh, incredible power and sway over our thoughts and our actions. On the one hand, what if is a phrase that can easily compound us into this, this fear-driven anxiety or this self-protective barrier that can, can paralyze us. It can make us cynical. Or what if can describe anticipation, holy expectation of full of possibility in faith. What if can describe a paralysis of fear or it can launch your faith. Leading into Easter, I wanted to do a sermon series about the essence and the, and the journey of faith, moving from fear to belief and trust, moving from what if to what if. I don't know if you're familiar with This Is Us. Um, it is a show on NBC. It's a really well-written show. Um, if you aren't familiar with the show, it's about a family with three children, all born on the same day. It's a set of twins and their adopted brother. Uh, in this particular scene, uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the, the finale, I um, just want to show it to you now. In this particular scene, uh, it's Kate's wedding day and her, her brothers can't find her. And caveat, th th these are not Jesus followers, you know. Kevin actually uses the Lord's name in vain, and they're talking about an unmarried couple living together, which is not God's design. But it does have something potent to say about how our fears get played out. Okay, so, Kevin and Randall. This is a disaster, Randall. This is huge. We lost the bride on the wedding day, all right? That's like the number one don't for wedding coordinators. 
You know, Beth and I play this game sometimes. Worst case scenario, it's where we say all the things that we're afraid of out loud and it makes us feel better. You down? Yeah, yeah, I'm down. Okay. We never find Kate and we have to tell Toby that the wedding's off and he's so shocked that he has a heart attack and dies. Jesus, that's Randall. Randall. That's the game. Yeah? yeah. Now, what if he doesn't die, Randall? But, uh, <clears throat> he could kick her out of the apartment. Yeah? Now she's forced to find a place to live. She's forced to move in with me. All right, it's supposed to be temporary, of course, but neither one of us ever find love. Right? We become one of those creepy pairs of twins that grows old together. And we're at the grocery store, and people mistake us for a married couple, and we don't even correct them anymore because, <laughs> I mean, what's the point? Wow. You're really good at this game. Thank you. You're welcome. So what if after Dad died, I got so absorbed in my own life with school and Beth and the girls that uh, I stopped looking out for my sister? What if... Uh... What if she spent so much time taking care of me that she forgot to take care of herself? And year after year went by and I should have recognized it. I should have helped her. I didn't help her. No, I, don't, I do not feel better. The what if worst case scenario game from the clip is such a, a vivid example of how fear can paralyze us, both with this anxiety about the future and shame about the past. We think we can get ahead, if we can get ahead of the possibilities, if we can think through every possible scenario, everything that could possibly go wrong, then we'll be able to somehow control it. <laughs> Or be relieved when the outcome isn't near as bad as our worst-case scenario. But fear works retroactively as well through our shame and regret over missed opportunities, past mistakes, poor decisions, the ramifications of our sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, worry has an active imagination. The problem with what if is that it's not based in reality. It looks through this distorted lens of fear that, of what could happen that we can't control or what's already happened that we can't change. And so our, our fear and our, our worry can blind us to what God actually has done and is doing and will do in the world, in creation, in history, and in your life. Humanity is laced with fear, and frankly, it's exhausting. It's exhausting physically, it's exhausting emotionally, but especially spiritually in that it erodes our trust in the power and the presence of God. Louis Giglio says that fear is faith in the enemy. So what does it mean to move from fear to faith in Jesus? What's it mean to live with this blessed assurance Jesus is mine, this, this pervasive trust in God. 
And leading up to Easter, we celebrate the resurrection, but we are also confronted with the reality of the resurrection. Part of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church was in response to this confusion and despair because people were saying, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. They were claiming that resurrection wasn't true. And so the question, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And Paul wrote, well, if that's true, then we are, of all people, to be most pitied. Because our, our faith, our hope, our very existence means nothing. It's worthless. Rick Manafo said, when people say that the physical resurrection of Jesus is unimportant or improbable, they're not making the gospel more palatable. They're not making Christianity more accessible. They're making it useless. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation and the culmination of the good news. It gives meaning and substance to our faith. It makes forgiveness for sin possible. It removes the sting of death. It robs the grave of final victory. The resurrection of Jesus flips the what-if question on its head, on its axis. The movement from fear to faith is a reinterpretation of what if. What if it's true? This resurrection of Jesus, what if it's true? How will that change everything in your life? How will it change how you see yourself, how you see your future, your past, your present, how you prioritize your life, how you deal with your motivations, your affections, your hopes and dreams? What if it's true? It's a game changer. It affects how you engage the world, how I engage with the world. All the needs that exist and the the groaning of creation, as the Bible puts it, the despair and the hopelessness and this narrative that is void of resurrection power. If the resurrection is true, it, it changes how we view Jesus, how we view Father, Son, and Spirit, our willingness to surrender to His way and to align with His truth and to receive His life. I mean, it changes everything if this is true much like we did in our Jesus Revealed series before Christmas. We wanted to lead into Easter with three vignettes, three stories within a story. Last week, uh, Teal Wojcicki um, taught about Mary Magdalene, and today I want to talk about Thomas. If you've heard of Thomas, you're aware of a label he's carried for the last 2,000 years or so. Doubting Thomas, yes. He hasn't been able to shake that one. But he actually is an example of raw and honest faith. What we know about Thomas comes from eight passages of Scripture. And four of those are simply a list of the 12 disciples. He's right in that list. Thomas walked with Jesus. That's what that means. He, he was chosen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so he, he walked with Jesus through those three years. He saw the miracles and he heard the sermons and he shared the meals and the road trips and life with Jesus. He, 
He witnessed the, the power that Jesus had over storms and disease and death and the authority with which he spoke in which he called out the empty religion of the Jewish leaders. And he also observed the compassionate presence of Jesus with the least of these, eating with sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors, inviting children to climb all over them. Hearing Jesus laugh with sheer delight when his disciples got it. So the first thing we know about Thomas is that he was there. Through all of it, with a few exceptions, everything on the pages of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Thomas lived it. He experienced it firsthand. His faith in Jesus was shaped by being with Jesus. He saw it day in and day out. There are three other passages in John's gospel that gives us an insight in the fact that Thomas was more than just a doubter. They even paint a picture of faith that is a bit unexpected. The first is in John chapter 11, and it's a story when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. On, on two earlier occasions in Jerusalem, they had tried to kill Jesus. And so, so now Jesus says, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. And his disciples, you know, remind him that's where they tried to kill, yeah? And Thomas says this. He says, let's also go so that we may die with him. Thomas was committed to the cause. He was committed to Jesus. Unlike the other disciples, I don't think Thomas was all that afraid of the Jews. And he wasn't afraid to ask questions. He wasn't afraid to, to look foolish. In John 14, this is the day before the crucifixion. Jesus is with his disciples around the Passover meal. And he's having a conversation about all kinds of things, including Heaven. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you with me so that you can be where I am. And Thomas says, Jesus, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus doesn't roll his eyes and say, oh, you stupid idiot. He says, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which pointed to what was about to take place on the cross the next day. And then that happened. The crucifixion. The chaos. The confusion. The, the fear. The despair. The grief. Which brings us to Sunday morning in the third passage with Thomas. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel, early when it was still dark, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb to put spices on the body, knowing that there was that huge rock in the way, but still just wanting to be near, wanting to be close, wanting to do something. But when she got there, she found that the stone had actually been rolled away and 
And so she didn't go in, and, but she did go tell the disciples, hey, someone stole the body. At least it's missing. She didn't say someone stole the body. She said, he's not there. Peter and John raced to the tomb, and, and, and John kind of stayed back, but Peter raced inside. He found the grave clothes folded up in the empty tomb, and John went in after that, and John actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And other than John, Thomas, at that point, is in the same place with all of the other disciples. None of them really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead at that point. And then Mary Magdalene sees Jesus, and she runs and tells the disciples who were hiding in fear of the Jews, hey, I just saw him. And then later that afternoon, Cleopas comes in and goes, I didn't just see him. I walked with him, and we were about to sit down at a meal, and then he kind of split. You know, he opened up all of Scripture and said, all of it points to me. And then our eyes were open, and we saw Jesus. And then Peter saw Jesus, and then all of this was too much for Thomas. He, he, evidently, he went out to get some air, you know, some space to process and to grieve and to question, to get out of the house. And, and wouldn't you know it, when he was gone, Jesus shows up. John writes that all of the disciples were hiding behind closed doors, and then suddenly Jesus was there. He says, peace be to you which is another way of saying, don't freak out. It's cool. It's me. But Thomas wasn't there. So when he finally gets back to the house and does the secret knock or whatever to get into the room, the others were ecstatic. They kept saying, we've seen the Lord. We've seen Jesus. He didn't share in the excitement. He had his doubts. He was frustrated because he wasn't feeling what they were feeling. And he even blurted out, if, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and, and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand in, into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Why didn't he believe? John Bloom writes, the words he spoke tell us of the horror he actually saw. The slaughter of Jesus outside Jerusalem had been so gruesome that it was all but humanly impossible for Thomas to imagine a resurrection of Jesus' body. When he saw Lazarus come back to life, Lazarus had just been sick. And so he walked out and he had nasty grave clothes, but it was his whole body. But Jesus had been torn to shreds. How does a mutilated man raise himself? He says, not, let's not assume too quickly that we would have responded differently had we seen what Thomas had seen. What he had seen is Jesus die a gruesome death. What he hadn't seen is Jesus in the flesh resurrected yet. It's interesting that Jesus waits eight days. For eight days, 
eight days, Thomas is locked in a room with a bunch of guys who had just experienced the most profound event in history. Do you know how annoying that would be? Just straight out worship, eight, uh, Friday night, we worshiped for a couple of hours. We could have kept going, but the, Purdue had to play a basketball game. <laughs> but eight days, when we are in despair and are around people that are so excited in their hope, it exposes our own despair. Early Saturday, When Jesus was still in the tomb, there was this shared grief. Misery loves company, right? We're in this boat together, but but now everybody but Thomas has gotten out of that boat and into this, oh my gosh, he has risen from the dead boat and Thomas is all alone and he's isolated in his grief. He is the only one, sans Judas, who had not yet seen the risen Lord. And to his credit, he stayed. And to the credit of the others, they didn't debate him. They didn't rebuke his doubt. Thomas's frustration was more, I think, with himself than with the others anyway. He was wrestling with himself. Part of him actually believed. Jesus had, had told them straight up that he would rise from the dead. It had made no sense before, but now what if it's true? But what if it's not? Can you feel what he's feeling? Under his doubt was fear. He wasn't so much fearful of his safety or his reputation. We've already clarified that. It seems that his fear, his doubt was attached to his desire for tangible evidence. I believe it when I see it and can prove it and write a paper on it, you know? It's that kind of skepticism that says, if it seems too good to be true, then it usually is. He wanted proof. If If I can't see it, how can I believe it? Faith is not diametrically opposed to reason, but it always goes beyond it. Under his doubt was a fear that as much as he wanted this to be true, what if it's not? I don't know if I can believe it, and I don't know if I can bear it if you all are wrong. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you, which means don't freak out. It's me. Then he said to Thomas, hey, come here. Put your finger here. Observe my hands. Reach out. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever but a believer. Jesus came to him. Not right away. Eight days. He didn't want to pull Thomas out of process. Jesus was using Thomas's doubt to build Thomas's faith. So Jesus meets him in that room, in his doubt, in his questions, in his despair. And in one sense, Jesus calls his bluff. Come here. Do it. Look. 
The text never says that Thomas actually did what he swore had to happen for him to believe. The text never says he actually put his finger in the wound and in the wound. There are some really graphic paintings from a few hundred years ago that show that. And I didn't show that to you today. I don't think he had to do that. His response was, my Lord and my God. His repentance is worship, and his worship is repentance. He had seen Jesus, and all of his fear was absorbed by the love of his good shepherd. History has it that Thomas went to India and preached the gospel and died a martyr. About 20 years ago, there was a Catholic nun in India that died after years and years and years of sacrificially serving the poorest and the most destitute in Calcutta. After she died, they found some of her journals. And this was a line from one of her journals. The more I want God, the less I am wanted. Mother Teresa, a saint in the Catholic Church, by, you know, hands down, one of the most sacrificially giving servants of Jesus to ever live, who loved Jesus, who, who served in his name, yet she had doubts and she had questions and she had her own dark nights of the soul, especially living and working among the most destitute, seeing some prayers answered and many seemingly not. We just went through a whole series on, on Job at one point in the midst of his suffering. If I, he said, if I called and he answered me, I, I could not even believe that I was listening to his voice. So where there is faith, there seems to be also the possibility of doubt that we hold those two things together. And so how do we deal with that? Well, we should be honest with that. There's an awesome picture in, in Mark chapter 9. This, this dad, his boy, is, is possessed with demons. And he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do something, please do it. And Jesus says, if? believe. And then the dad says this, and this is, this is what I'm talking about. He says, I believe, finish the sentence, help me in my unbelief. I believe Jesus helped me in my unbelief. I believe I do. 
Help, help me in my questions. Help me in my doubts. Help, help me in those gaps when I am feeling distant, when everyone else seems to, to get it and I don't, when I feel isolated in my own grief and in my own pain. Jesus, I, I believe, I want to believe with my heart as well as my head. Secondly, God does not want us to live by simply depending on our feelings. Worship is with our heart and with our soul and with our mind and with our strength. It's with our will. It's with our mind. It's, it's not, it, it is a different kind of going through the motions. I talked about this at, at spring break. There's a, a kind of going through the motions that is, is, is flippant and is, is removed from God and is arrogant, is an, makes an idol of intellectualism. But there's also a showing up with God that is just deeply, deeply received by him. So when I'm not feeling it, I still engage with this good, good father with what I know to be true. And eventually, the feelings come. Eventually, it all clicks. Similarly, there is a doubt and questioning that is rooted in arrogance and in intellectualism. But there is another kind of doubt and questioning that is wrapped in faith, in a a desire to believe, a desire to hope that's followed by a deep confidence. Far from a troubling secret, that Christians must hide with shame. Our doubts must always lead us to investigate and then to respond like Thomas to the evidence provided by the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is Jesus' reply in verse 29. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you. Thomas, you, you eventually saw me, and so, so you believed. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what's really cool are, are those who haven't seen me face-to-face, who haven't actually been invited to put their fingers in my wounds, but yet they believe. That's all y'all. There's a different kind of seeing it's described in various places. First Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Yeah? That would be, yeah. <laughs> though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Second Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11, faith is confidence in what we hope for. It is assurance about what we do not see. And that is not comfortable. I was reading part of Louis, Louis Giglio's book on giants. He says, the gospel is rooted in a place of discomfort, but it's Christ's discomfort. The cross brought pain to Jesus in the same, 
in the same way it brought freedom to us. We are alive because of Christ's discomfort. Christ endured what was uncomfortable so we could become the sons and daughters of God. This is your story. People ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to put our faith in the work of Christ. What's the work of Christ? That he came to earth, that he lived, he was crucified, he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, he sent the Spirit of God, he's now living inside of us. This is the gospel, this is what we believe, and it all hinges around a very uncomfortable moment. So our own discomfort of our unmet expectations or our demandingness for equality in God's good blessing or our yet unresolved grief or pain or wound. All of that kind of discomfort gets absorbed in the discomfort of the cross. So we can hold this tension that God is good and this hurts. That even though I have yet to see it, I believe it. And that kind of faith itself is a gift. It's a gift that God desperately wants to give you today. We're going to take communion and uh, as the folks get that ready, that's your cue. Uh, let me just read this out of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. The what if and the what if. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that kind of, of confidence, that that kind of confidence is Ours. So we take this bread and we take this cup to acknowledge and to remember, to, to celebrate to feel the, the weightiness of the cross and simultaneously to feel the freedom of the cross. Thank you for the hope that is in the resurrection today. Just a couple questions to ask before we go, and if you want to pray into that, we invite you to come up and, and pray into this. Um, is, is there anything in your, your past, your present, or future that Jesus is calling you to, to lay down this illusion of control the anxiety and shame of what if and, and put your trust in him really specifically? Is, is there something that you are still hanging on to that today is the day you just, you just kind of lay that to the feet of the Savior?
in where might Jesus be taking you uh, to move from a place of fear to a place of faith? And the third question is, is there, is there anything in your life right now that looks and feels like faith? So take those questions with you. Um, one really, really other quick thing. In Daniel chapter 3, there's, uh, there's Daniel, then there's his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and there's, this, there's this thing, that, this edict from the king that says, you, you have to bow to the idol, and those three guys says, no, we're not going to do that, and so if they didn't do that, they'd be thrown into a fiery furnace and just be incinerated, right? And they said this, they said, king, you got nothing on our king. We believe that he will deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. So we're talking about moving from what if to what if, what if anxiety, paralysis, fear, to what if anticipation and faith, to uh, even if I know God is good. That's the gift of faith that he wants desperately to give you.